my lunatic fringe horror nuts out there many thanks to you for choosing a year in horror for your listening ear assaults today for those that are new to the show though this is a podcast where i take a year at random out the hat and i watch all the highly rated films from that year and then i rank them i get in guests and we chat about the picks of the pack only today is not that day This is a mid-month episode, and here I stalk bands that I'm a fan of, and I insist that they come onto this show and talk to me about horror films. That's it. Horror films. Bands I like. Mix it up. Blah, 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 blah. So, previously, I've chatted with Orange Goblin. I've chatted with Pigs, 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 The Locust, Napalm Death, Maps, Dayseeker, Night Demon, Sixteen, Svalbard, Tankard, probably others i can't remember them but coming up over the next few months as well we've got funeral for a friend we've got mets we've got sons sons we've got best coast and we've even got slayer on the books slayer they're not even doing records and stuff anymore but i've got i'm coming on here but today we're gonna dive into punk and we're diving hard we're going with anti-flag or as they like to call themselves anti-flag those crazy americans but not only this when i reached out to speak with the guitarist singer and songwriter just insane he mentioned that his sister Anne, who is also known as am giver that it would be cool to get her on the show too she's the author of the undead age zombie trilogy of books Imagine my little face as I rub my hands together, knowing that we're going to be chatting about Night of the Living Dead with a brother and sister duo, both raised just a few miles from where this movie was actually filmed. So if you don't know Anti-Flag, then head over to anti-flag.com and delve in there, okay? Just do that. Or just type in Anti-Flag to wherever you stream your music, hit random, and trust me, you're going to hit a banger probably got to do my due diligence here and say that they do have a new album coming out on spine farm records as well it's called lies that they tell our children and there's already five tracks from it up and live in the world get stuck in and one of them sounds a little bit like this Plus, if you want to get more info on Anne's literary work, then hit up amgiva.com. It's all there. I'm going to put everything in the notes for you. Hit them both up at your convenience, but make sure you say hello from me. Okay? Deal? Okay. George A. Romero's 1968 classic, Night of the Living Dead. Here's that letterbox synopsis for you. If it doesn't scare you, you're already dead. 
A group of people try and survive an attack of bloodthirsty zombies whilst they're trapped in a rural Pennsylvania farmhouse. Right. So, in total, I've seen this three times before, and then for my fourth watch, I watched it with the commentary on, which has George on there telling a few stories as well. If you've seen the thing a ton of times already, I would recommend you just go for that commentary track. It was a good time. It's not particularly funny, but it's very informative, very engaging. Uh, fact bombs everywhere. They dropped everywhere. There was loads I didn't know. I'll give you one. For instance, that truly classic opening scene with the car pulling into the cemetery. Uh, the zombie attacks Barbara, but then she gets saved by her brother. Well, a bit later on, she's getting away. She's in the car and a zombie gets a brick and breaks the window. Well, that window break was real. It wasn't sugar glass and it was one take. Even when we first go into the house, there are animal trophies on the wall. So we were getting that from the very beginning. That's crazy. Clearly, this is about the haves and the have-nots, and it could have gone all sorts of wrong if it hadn't been for some incredible casting, especially Dwayne Jones. He plays Ben. He's the main guy. Judith O'Day plays Barbara and she gets way too much stick for being passive or being too crazy and there's no in between. Like whenever you read a review and they try and pick a hole, that's what people would usually go to. But for my money, her performance is all about that in between. Without her, again, I just don't think this film works. And then, of course, we've got Cole Hardman, who plays Harry Cooper. He's the bald, moany fella. And there we go. Those three key members of the cast are spot on. And right before we get to Justin and Anne for the chat, I think I need to mention my Patreon, right? I've got no choice. I'd be silly not to. So head over to patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. It's only there that you can hit up four unique episodes a month of bonus content where I'm going to deal with various series and music things and horror movies and new ones and old ones and well I'm currently embarking on the video Nasty Deep Dive as you know. Uh, tons of guests still to come on that and I'll also be diving headfirst into the ridiculous Amityville Horror franchise. Each month, myself and Howard Smith, he's the singer with Acid Rain. Again, you should know this stuff, but he'll be choosing some random films that are easily accessible on your streaming platforms. And we're just going to go at them. There's going to be so much Ace content on here coming forward. I'm pretty excited. If I wasn't doing it, I'd subscribe myself. You want to join in? <laughs> join us so I don't have to keep doing this stupid hard sell bit. Anyway, in all seriousness, every time I get a notification ping uh, that some new person has signed up, I just get super excited about it. Keeps me hyper-focused on the podcast. And what can I say? I just truly appreciate you helping me out. So thank you for keeping A Year in Horror alive. Once again, cheers. Right, after the trailer, it is myself. It is Anne and it is just insane. We're barricading ourselves into the cabin and we're trying to stay out of harm's way. The killers are eating the flesh of the people they murdered. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. I'm 
be a lot more of them as soon as they find out about us. All persons who die during this crisis, from whatever cause, will come back to life to seek human victims. I'm telling you, they can't get in here. Coming to get you, Barbara. So cute. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, um, we're going to kick off with Justin. So, Justin, welcome. Hey, great, great to talk to you. Thanks for having uh, me on. It's great. I love that it's a, a brother and sister duo here. Um, oh first, yeah, personally. Oh, yeah. Um, and Anne, also welcome to the show. I'm going to get to you in just a moment. But yeah, as I sure. say, Justin, just want to kick off with a little bit about Anti-Flag. Um, right, and right. I was very surprised when um, I saw you for the first time at Reading Festival and you came on and you went, you were called Anti-Flag. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely threw me for a six. Um, <laughs> there we go. So I manage bands for a living. So it's one of the things that I'm really into this question. I asked them all and I'm really sorry because I know you won't want to retread it. But I have oh, to. I love it. I love it. Let's do it. So the pandemic, right? Yeah. You, your band, you're constantly on tour. If not, you're constantly writing. Right. right. It just seems that way to an observer. It's so, true. When this hit, what do you do? Um, how did you approach it just as a band? What was going through your mindsets? Yeah, well, we, you know, it was funny because we were, we had just started a North American tour on our record that had come out at that, that January, which was our record 2020 vision had just come out. We were sitting you know, in the week up and in, in the, the build up and the week up to the shutdown we discussed like, do we go on tour? Should we just call it off? It looks like things are going to go downhill. But I looked at our tour schedule and I was like, man, these first two weeks, we if we could just get to New York, we'll have a great two week run and we're going to make it. Like I'm the optimist, man. I was like, it's going to happen, you know? So, and, I, and we were all stoked. Like we wanted to play the new songs, you know? So, um, so we played in Ottawa, Canada and, uh, the next night we got to Montreal and it was just like a, a switch. It went from, you know, nothing, no problems to it shut down. It was un unbelievable how fast it happened. So, yeah, I mean, we just we drove home. It's like a 12 hour drive from Montreal. We drove home and then it just immediately kind of was like, look, everybody do what you have to do for your families. And then then we're all going to come back together in a couple of days and make a plan for ourselves. So that's kind of what we did, because we could see where it was going. You know, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we're from, wasn't shut down yet, but it was obvious where things were headed. Sure. And um, then within like three days, you know, Trump, who was president at the time, he announced the shutdown. And so, you know, we had like a few more days after that. But yeah, I mean, I think, though, like our, our dad is now 88 and like our and he has like some pre conditions, like some health conditions. Right. So we kind of like we're really focused on how are we going to manage his situation? 
So that was really where my focus went. And then with the band, what's really cool, and you know, I will say like this is the first time I've ever done an interview with my sister, which is so dope. Like I'm loving this, you know, and obviously she's here because <laughs> she writes zombie novels and horror, you know, and I'm, I'm in band, so I'm here. But what's really cool about it for me is like, Annie, in a way, like I was in the punk scene and she was not, but she's sort of been a fifth member of Anti-Flag for so many years because we're close in age. We've always been close. And, you know, she was kind of there from, you know, the conception of the band and at different times has kind of come in to help us out and worked on things. I mean, I think she was there on like one of our very first tours. So it's right. it's kind of right. like... Yeah, so it's kind of amazing to me that like we haven't done this together since we've done yeah. so many other things together, you know. But the, but where I'm going with this though is there is a community around the band, you know. Even in Pittsburgh, there's a community around the band where we have kind of our like tight, solid core with the four of us, and then a couple of people who have worked for us forever. Like they were just friends, and they just kind of ended up falling into working for us, and they're sort of like the people that make the nuts and bolts of everything in the band happen for us because like you said we're on the road so much and and Annie's been one of those people so when the pandemic kicked in it was sort of like that core group of people kind of pulling together to figure out okay who needs what and what are we going to do and even like it even spun out to like yo you guys don't know this guy but I know this guy or this is my neighbor and they need this and does somebody have this? And so that, you know, it was kind of like a all hands on deck. Everybody pulled together. And then the the shutdown really wasn't as traumatic as I think we all thought it might be in right. the end. It's yeah. interesting, like how bands all of a sudden didn't matter about being in a band when yeah. it's been your entire life and, and right. focus until that very moment. And then it just puts it into perspective, actually, like family. And this and this, everything that you might have put on the back burner. Uh, and it's what, what we found like throughout our community as well. So, yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. That, and that is fascinating because you're right. I mean, I've been obsessed with this band since I was, I saw uh, the documentary Another State of Mind, which for anybody who's like interested in early punk, I highly recommend it. It's only like an hour and seven minutes. It might not even be that long. Mm -hmm. But it has Social Distortion doing their first U.S. tour ever in uh, 1982 and it was Youth Brigade, Social Distortion. They hooked up along the way with like DOA and Minor Threat and uh, and and DC. Like, you know, they just kind of, it's just this document of early punk. And I happened to catch that on this like so late good. night show. Yeah, like on- We used to watch it all the time. Yeah, and like I, I saw them like this late night show called Nightflix where they would just run like probably shit that they get their hands on cheap you know <laughs> license like cheap license stuff and since i saw that i wanted to be in a band and the guy who's my best friend still who's our drummer he saw it at the same time we we weren't even that tight as friends at that time but we both had that in common and man it was so ever since i saw that I was probably like 12 or 13 and the band was just like be in a band this is what i do and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and it was like oh man i the band not so important right now yeah it's mad it, you function uh, as a band so differently than pretty much every other band I follow like even from the way mm. like I was in London when uh, you played recently and the way you stopped uh, a stage invader um 
it was just like a, a gentle telling off and you know you did it. it was so strange to see it was just like yeah it was kind but forceful. that guy i remember he was like <laughs> trying to rip my leg off he was on stage and he would not let go and, the, and and we don't we don't generally let security on stage because we have our people with us and they know how we like to do it we don't want anybody to get beat up or hurt unless they're like attacking someone right so and sometimes security can be a little heavy-handed, especially for somebody who gets on stage. So I just we just had to stop playing. I was like, dude, you gotta let go of my leg, man. Like, uh, it's cool to see you. I appreciate the love. <laughs> and then just like our buddy Mark, he was like, oh, come on, man, gotta go. You know? but, <laughs> what can you do in yeah. that situation? But yeah, as I say, you handled it in such a unique way. So yeah, props to you for that. Um, we, Sick, that's cool. I've got to mention. Um, I've just got to mention it. So another thing that's bizarre to me, obviously, we get all these press releases and your new album's coming out Jan the 6th. Um, right, right. But the thing that pops out to me is that it says it's a concept album of sorts. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Please talk us through this. Oh, man, here we go. Right. Um, Anti-flag of the concept record. Well, really, <laughs> I mean, it's... <laughs> Of course, it's not going to be like a happy topic. And here we are just trying to have a good time, right? <laughs> um, we kind of thought we're like just like shooting the shit about like what are the crises that face us as, you know, the existential crisis as 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 a civilization, as human beings. And, and so we kind of just identified the things that were big to us. And we just said, let's write a song about this list of things. So like, and 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 that's that's kind of what we did. So like track one is about global climate change. And it's it's about the fact it's kind of like amazing in a way. And the song's out, right? It's it's called Laugh, Cry, Smile, Die. It was the first song we released um on the record. Um, but it's it's just about the fact that uh mobile oil, um, and I believe the year was 1983, they released an ad campaign, a PR campaign to, it was basically a disinformation campaign. And it was called Lies They Tell Our Children. And that's, so that's where we took the title of, of the record from. Cool. And it was, it was a PR campaign to tell people that global warming does not exist. Now, everything that you've heard about global warming not existing was pretty much came from the oil company and it pretty much came from you know madison avenue advertising firms that uh wanted to protect the profits of oil companies and what's incredible about it is that it was actually the oil company scientists who were studying the burning of fossil fuels and all this carbon and what they noticed was that hey this is heating up the planet well, when this word got to the CEOs of the oil companies, they said to themselves, this is like really bad for business. Like, whoa, no way, man. So they just shut that down. And what they did instead, they they shut down the scientific research. They turned around and took that money. They put that money into disinformation about global warming. And so anything that you've heard about, you know, like climate change not existing or why it doesn't exist. I can guarantee you it came from an oil company disinformation campaign and and like which is just so crass and it you know we're doing like this horror horror podcast right I mean it's kind of a horror show that's the real horror right there right yeah 
And and but we wanted to identify these things because we kind of felt like if we can identify these things for people, then maybe we can work backwards and tackle these issues and and it will help people to to see to find some solution in some way out. I think a lot of the things that we identify, they're not that old. I mean, even even like, you know, sort of the fossil fuel companies having so much power to uh, control the way uh, people see, you know, how we treat the planet. Like these things, they're not that old. And I, I think that we can actually turn them around. And I, I know like right now, it feels to a lot of people like we're in like this hope, hopeless like death spiral. And I totally understand that. And I have my days. But, you know, when we stopped and looked at these kind of existential crises, we we're like, fuck, man, this shit's not that old. Like we can beat this. And so that was sort of how we took it as as a concept record. So is the, are you talking it like that's just track one, wait till you get to the others, or is the whole <laughs> yeah, overarching right. theme that? Right, right. Jesus. 100%. 100%. <laughs> and it's, you know, some of the songs are are more um, are more general. I mean, they're not all, like, completely focused. I mean, like, for example, like, you know, I wrote a song about imperialism, and it was just like, you know, I just wanted it to be, I was like talking about, I was like, well, if we're talking about imperialism, like be interesting to write a, a, a song from the point of view of the, the oppressor and like how they see it and why they come at it the way they're coming at it, you know, cause then you can kind of see the belligerence of who they are. And, and then maybe we can like ask ourselves, like, is that really the society we want to be? Is that who we want to be? And, and, and again, so we, we just kind of took a, a bunch of different topics and, and tried to look at it in that way. I mean, obviously like a short time after we started writing the record, um, Russia invaded Ukraine. So that also kind of, you know, I look back on it now and I see how much of an influence that had, which at the time I didn't, I didn't realize it maybe quite as much. And I, I think that, um, you know, we have a song that by the time this comes out, will be coming out called uh, uh, Victory or Death. And I can see where that song is like really probably influenced by that or Fight of Our Lives would be influenced by that. But Victory or Death is really just about kind of like celebrating the fact that like there have been people who have been fighting for kind of progressive idea, ideas and for leading us out of dark times. And um, we just wanted people to think about their stories and the fact that those people, they always kind of exist underneath, but they're not people that are necessarily always um, celebrated in the mainstream. But ultimately, I think that what, what, whether it's music or art or these activists, you know, a lot of the issues that the anti-flag stood against when we started were like really radical ideas in a lot of ways. And, and like just simple things like racism, homophobia. Like I can tell you right now, like where we grew, where we grew up, racism was like a huge, huge, ugly, ugly problem. We've made such a great, like great steps towards dealing with it and towards more equality. Same thing with homophobia or same thing with dealing with the environment. So we're not there yet, but we've made great strides. And, and, and I think that, you know, whether, it, again, whether it's music or art or these activists, they're the kind of people that have, have led us there. So now a lot of times when Antif like talks about an issue, it's much more of a mainstream issue than it was when we started dealing with it so many years ago. It's interesting that I think if we ever get to a space where there's going to be 
sort of world peace that's the end of your band that's it oh man we'll be like puppies and kittens you know or maybe like we're like the misfits like writing like you know horror horror song horror movie song but i'm all for it dude like bring on the puppies and the kittens let's go let's you know it. like um, uh, a call to arms for the end of anti-flag that's what's going on yeah right. yeah yeah absolutely um, okay and I can't wait for my second question here. I'm so interested in this. Right. Okay. So the very first thing, how do you approach the writing of these things? Now you've done, I think it's a trilogy of Mm -hmm. the undead age, but there's been so much out there before this from 68 zombies are, as we now sort of know them. How do you approach it in a different manner? Um, that is a very good question because, you know, obviously with fiction, you've got tropes, you know, there are certain things that happen in stories that you, um, that readers expect and that help you give the story a shape. Um, the way I approached it was I set my first series 10 years after the zombie apocalypse, you know, um, that was a very conscious choice because quite frankly, I wasn't interested in in writing the beginning because you know we all know there's only so many ways you can do it you know you've got like zombies come and figure out what they are plucky band of survivors you gotta bug out to somewhere you know like and i was just like i i did not want to write that so i decided to to set it 10 years after and um another thing i did differently was that like i um i also set the initial society in one that had not regressed technologically, you know? And that was my husband's idea, actually, because, uh, you know, the story set in the San Jose, Silicon Valley in California. And, you know, he said, you know, look, when the dust settles, the geek factor will kick in, you know? Because <laughs> yeah. um, there will be enough smart people who, you know, have all this tech know-how, because that's what he does, he does tech. Um, you know, that have this tech know-how and they'll, they'll they are not going to want to not be able to use their iPhones, you know, or whatever it is, you know. So um, so that was the way I approached it, you know, was to look at the society that has be- become established, you know, and what are they doing and how are they approaching things? Um, you know, and then I get a lot of things that are very common, you know, in if not zombie uh, literature, perhaps, but like dystopian uh, uh, fiction in terms of like, you know, having a cure. I guess that was something I, different I did. Having a cure, but the cure is hard to get. You know, some people can get it, some people can't, you know, and it's the basis of this unequal society. Um, so, uh, so, you know, so there are, there are ways you can do it. You know, you can do it with the setting. You can do it with what you do with zombies. A lot of people play with that. Um, so th- there are things you can do, but you can also only take it so far because one thing authors do when we start out is we want to be unique. We want to do something different, you know, and that's great. You can do something unique and different. But you still have to have enough in there that it's something people recognize as being a zombie book or a science fiction book or a romance. You know, if if you're too out there in left field, people are not going to it's not going to resonate with people that you're trying to reach with the story. You know, so like like people love to tear on tropes. But when you have movies that don't have the tropes, they don't hit those notes that people sure. expect 
And, you know, then, and you can see it in films, um, you can see it in, in, in all kinds of things. It's where there are problems is when that's like all people do, you know, and, and then they're just very formulaic. But, you know, so you kind of have to like strike a fine line between, you know, writing what you want and what's interesting to you, but also delivering the reader something that they're going to enjoy. I mean, if you just want to write for yourself and you don't want to get books out into the world and you don't want to develop a readership, knock yourself out, write the strangest, weirdest crap you want to do. But if you want people to read your book, you have to keep them in mind, you know, um, and it has to be about more than just you. So no spoilers here, but I love the study of religion I am so into like how it infects us throughout the ages and from different cultures and just how different things resonate with different people whereas this part of it won't resonate with someone else so with that going on in my head and then I read that you've got a background as a theologian come on mm -hmm. where's this fit into this book um you know honestly that was just kind of a an accident um, I mean, like, so I, I do have a Master of Divinity degree. I, I went to Star King School for the ministry and studied to be a Unitarian Universalist minister. Um, by the time I graduated, I did not want to pursue ministry, ordained ministry. I was like, this is, it was like a wonderful experience. And, you know, some of my best friends are the people that I met there to this day. And um, I was just like, I do not want to be a minister. I don't want to never have the weekend off. Um, you know, I don't like potluck, you know. And, and there were just certain, in fact, I have a good friend. He went on to medical school after seminary. And I remember the two of us standing in the kitchen at school being like, I don't like potlucks. I don't like them either, you know. So it was really hilarious. But, um, but you know, but I, so, you know, I went off and I basically, try found out what I didn't want to do for like the next 15 years or so. Um, but I was working at, um, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler for anybody, but you know, like there's a good group and a bad group, you know, there's the, there's the people who control the, the zombie virus cure and they're the city council and they're the bad guys. And so I decided to set the story in San Jose, A, because of just the whole when the dust settles, the geek factor kicks in. But also, you know, I, I originally wanted to write the story in Pittsburgh, but I wasn't hadn't lived in Pittsburgh for a good five, six years at that point. And it was just too hard to, like, figure out where I wanted things. And and I had things had changed or were wrong. And um, so, you know, my husband and I were like hashing out the overarching plot like that first week. And when I finally figured out what I wanted to write and I just needed so, a counterbalance to the city council. And I worked at a Jesuit university. And, you know, when you get into the more uh, progressive orders of of nuns and priests and the Catholic Church, you know, liberation theology is a really big um, theological emphasis for a lot of most of them. And basically, liberation theology has a preferential option for the poor. And you, it, it basically takes policy. It, it looks at the politics of the Christian gospel versus just a religious aspect, you know, and it acknowledges that, like, you know, you there are political implications to religious practice. And so, you know, obviously the Jesuits would be a counterbalance to the um, 
to the, to the bad guys, like, cause they would be out there trying to help people and trying to empower the community and trying to fight this really evil, you know, cabal who has set themselves up. So I wasn't thinking about that per se. I didn't go in thinking I want this examination of religion or, or, you know, anything like that or any of the stuff that happens later, you know, um, I, I really wasn't thinking about it in those terms, but I do find that religion and religious belief, good, bad, otherwise, it does tend to pop up in my work. Um, you know, how can it not? Well, yeah. And also too, like, I swear to God, I think I went to seminary because I've always kind of struggled with like, so are people inherently good or do they suck? You know, like, what is it, you know? And I finally settled on people or people, you know, <laughs> and there is not all one or the other, but, um, so that kind of, that, that pops up in my, my writing, just in terms of why do people make the choices they do and, you know, how do they live with them? And post-apocalyptic fiction really lets you do that in a very fun way because the choices are so stark. I, I like the fact, too, that like anti-flags, like the corporations have too much power and they're evil. And then my sister writes a book and she's like, the corporation has too much power and they're evil. It's like we're definitely cut from the same cloth, even though we, we do very different it's things, you know. So true. It's so okay. true. As, general as summarization <laughs> there of course yeah it can't help them but be weaved throughout and like threaded throughout your writing when it's that bigger part of your life so yeah exciting cool. but we are now at, to the horror part and i've got to know um your history both of you with horror movies was it something that was big in your household or was it like mm -hmm. no Scary movies. Yeah, yeah, scary movies. Like, I think, because we were, so our parents are Irish Catholic, right? So we, I'm the youngest of nine, and Annie is the eighth youngest of nine. Mm -hmm. And wow. and so, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Madness, madness. So, like, our older brothers and sisters were, you know, especially our brothers were yeah. like, anything horror, anything science fiction, anything scary. You know, we we grew up like total Trekkies, you know, and then like it was just sort of I didn't actually until I was really thinking about this podcast and I've listened to a couple episodes which I really enjoyed. And mm -hmm. I I forgot how much I loved horror growing up. And my buddy Chris Sheridan and I, when we were like 14, 15, every Friday night we would go to like a blockbuster video basically and just look for the like most terrible looking horror movie that they had and we you know we'd get like a box box of cookies and milk and like just you know <laughs> yeah. like sugar high on like horror watching horror movies you know and like i i didn't it was something fun for us to do it wasn't a passion that like stayed with me where then i started i followed the horror genre but i always enjoyed it and then kind of coming coming back around to where you're coming from like I think, you know, we're from Pittsburgh. So it's like George Romero made, you know, Night of the Living Dead, the kind of the first sort of like modern zombie movie in Pittsburgh. And then he carried on to make Dawn of the Dead or and, and it just kind of went on from there. So a lot of like the the modern folk uh, zombie lore kind of came out of our hometown. You yeah, know? yeah. So it had like this outsized influence, you know. And then also too, like, there was this like um, show on Saturday nights called Chiller Theater. And in fact, the guy in uh, 
Bill Cardill, who plays the uh, the, the, the news, news reporter, reporter yeah. in Night of the Living Dead, he wow. hosted it. Okay, and <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, they would do it was a double feature of old movies. You know, it didn't start till eleven thirty. And Justin and I both have incredibly overactive imaginations. So we were not allowed to stay up for this as children. <laughs> so eventually at some point we would sneak down and we would watch it. And our brothers wouldn't rat us out, you know, but if our parents told us we'd go to bed, they'd be like, oh, you know? um, right. but um, so yeah, we go down there and we would watch these movies and like, you know, old movies, like old Dracula, the blob, you know, creature from the black lagoon, them, um, them old wow. radioactive yeah. ants, man. That's a good one. It really is. <laughs> and, um, but then also all the 70s hammer uh the studios you know all the the dracula and the werewolf films you know it's like peter cushing and the one guy whose name i'm totally blanking it's a black on. lagoon monster from creature from the, creature from the black yeah, lagoon so yeah watched all these films you know that had these really heavy duty horror and supernatural elements and then we'd like go to bed and have nightmares and up to sleep <laughs> cool. and have to barricade the, the the door to the um to the closet you know you know so, so there was a lot of storytelling in our and a lot of appreciation of scary stuff yeah and pittsburgh though like there is a pride in the city of like whoa george romero oh, totally. like you know made these zombie movies like they're you know they're like the the second movie in his install in his installment was uh what it's dawn, dawn of the dead and it's shot at a mall like right on the outskirts of pittsburgh and you know when the mall was built it was like this marble like modern marble like i remember as a kid like people are going to monroeville mall I'm like holy shit you're going to monroeville mall like that was like the sacred you know place of consumerism <laughs> like, you know and like it has an ice skating rink inside holy shit really no way you know it's just it's so outdated now you know but like, so the movie though took place at that mall and there's still like, dude, I hadn't seen this movie in probably like 30 years. And I have so much pride about <laughs> that mall and the movie being filmed there. And I've watched the movie because we watched- We watched both. We, we watched, watched Night of the Living oh, Dead. Oh, sweet. Dawn of the yeah. Dead. And I was just horrified at how bad Dawn of the Dead is. It's just terrible. Like, but- <laughs> but i still loved it but it's just really funny that i've had so much pride in this thing that i haven't even assessed in my adult life you know so yeah and it's funny too because like night of the living dead is a legitly is a legit good film yeah it really it's is very well done it really holds up and there's stuff in dawn of the dead that is awesome and holds up but as a film it's just not that great a film you know in my opinion um but i still think it's great you they, know yeah they were definitely doing a lot more drugs when they made Dawn of the Dead, <laughs> which I'm not, I'm not like knocking i'm just saying maybe lay off the drugs a little bit when you're trying <laughs> yeah. to make a, a great film <laughs> well, I, I would say that's a bit of a, an assumption but uh, having well, maybe seen they weren't the, doing enough yeah, yeah having yeah. seen the commentary i can wholeheartedly uh agree with you there okay um, <laughs> but that is a cool thing about this area and mm -hmm. and then just watching like of course like in, in night of the living dead like 
it's like looks like our backyard. So yeah, that'll... yeah. Well, we were watching it because like it's it's almost I, and they must have done they did well. I don't know if they filmed it at the same time of the year, but like you know we just had the time change where then the clocks fall back. Well, they actually mentioned it at the beginning of the movie the, when Barbara and Johnny are driving up from Pittsburgh, and you know she's complaining about the late start because he slept in, and he's like, "Well, we just had the time change, and I was tired," you know. So like they're driving down this road, and the landscape is the landscape we grew up in and down um, to down to what i love is the road sign which has bullet holes in it from like shotguns <laughs> you know because that was like yeah. that's what it's like here i mean people like friday night know, man go out and shoot up well, the road signs you know like more so when we were kids because yeah, i mean yeah. we live in the we grew up in the suburbs and you know obviously it was more suburban but you know it wasn't that developed once you got 20 minutes even 15 minutes outside of of the burbs you know so um when he with, talks i love this he's always making references to the rednecks in a pretty snide like way mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. i i love that because we rednecks were like part of our life you know and we grew up in appalachia so it yeah. wasn't overly sophisticated here you know like it was like steel mills tough guys meat and potatoes you know just kind of like um not real worldly and you know it took me so long to realize that like you know in a lot of ways we were just like podunk town little kids which i didn't realize as a kid yeah 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 and even though like you know pittsburgh and the uh, the city and like we lived 15 minutes max drive from the from the city not even like 10 minutes um it's, it's not a very big place you know but you know it's got these really great hospitals and universities and you know and and as a kid you know like you would go to to Oakland to go to the museum and that's where the universities were you know and since we had older brothers and sisters who were in college and you know my parents were partners in a restaurant that was in that area you know like we we used to go into the city a lot I had friends who like never went into the city but you're right we were like whoa man you guys are really wild pretty yeah. Yeah. but um but it was um it was still provincial it was it, yeah, Pittsburgh yeah. was still pr quite provincial. It wasn't that big a city, you know. Yeah. Um, but see, now we're more modern, and so we refer to Pittsburgh as the Paris of Appalachia. And that's sort mm -hmm. of where where we're at today, in modern modern times, modern Pittsburgh. Yeah. Well, I Google mapped it um, the other day just to get a sort of bearing. And of course, it doesn't go back 54 years or whatever to, to when this was filmed. But yeah. yeah, the portrayal of the general townsfolk in this film it doesn't look like that sort of city to me it looks far too modern and too sophisticated to have that sort of people even in the periphery of it uh, but i guess going back to when you were kids maybe that isn't the case then. yeah i mean because well, we were kids in the 80s well, also too. To, that the, the 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 night of the living dead was actually filmed in sharon pa which is about two hours north yeah. West of yeah. Here, North, uh, so it's about two hours away. So it was the country where they where they filmed that that film was the country. Um, but um, so it it, it really was. It, we weren't in quite such a rural area, but it was definitely a lot less developed when we were kids versus like when it is now. Because you know, uh, yeah, I I'm I'll be fifty four next month, so it's or January. So like. 
you know, I was this the film was made a year before I was born. And, you know, the amount of development that's happened in the area I grew up in that we grew up in um, as kids in the late 70s and 80s um, is just astounding. Yeah. Compared to so, so like that movie was definitely set in the sticks. But, but, but Romero, he went to school at Carnegie Mellon University, which is like down, you know, in, in the city proper of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And it's actually like a very revered school in, in film, you know, in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, um, but, but he also, I'm sure got out there and experienced the rest of Pennsylvania. And it's, it's sort of like the rest of the world. Like you, you know, people in the city, then, then like you get outside of the city and all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's a very different lifestyle outside of it. Sure. I think we had a, a foot in both of we those did, worlds, kind of. you know, because our dad was like a contractor and we were out in, in that kind of country world a lot. And I really liked that world, but I also liked, you know, my brothers and sisters would go to like Rocky Horror Picture Show, like in the college town part of town, mm-hmm. you know, and like going to that as a young kid and just be like, whoa, what the hell is this? You know, yeah. and like, nice. so we really had a foot in both worlds. And I like even, but just to give you a sense of what it was like when we were growing up, and I don't want to harp on this too much, but like Western Pennsylvania, where we we grew up, there were more, I don't know if it's this way anymore, but there were more registered hunters per capita than any other part of the country. And they would get the first day of hunting season off in this area. So wow. in the yeah, so in the movie, he's showing like basically these like militias of guys walking around with hunting rifles and stuff that's real like it's so real mm-hmm. and even like he's got the news broadcasters like the local news guy like yeah. that is a real person like and you hear the pittsburgh accent like we have this oh thing God. called it's called pittsburgh ease and it's it's a colloquialism that we have here it's sort of mostly like left over from the scots who settled pittsburgh and um you know, there's certain words that they use. So it was a trip to like watch oh, it and so just fun. hear like, you know, we call each other locals in Pittsburgh. You're called a, a yinzer. And and that comes from the idea in, in Pittsburghese where you don't say you all or or y'all. You say yins. So it's like, hey, are yins guys going downtown, which would be, hey, you guys going downtown. Like and we hear that accent and watching the movie and like as for for like people from this area that made oh, watching so the movie fun. such a trip like <laughs> yeah hear, hearing those those, those oh yeah uh, like when, when we were kids nobody understood the difference between ignorant and rude okay when we were kids if he was rude i'd be like he's so ignorant to me you know well right at the beginning of night of the living dead they say that <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah she she says he her, her brother is being a jerk to her and she's like you're being ignorant and we're like, man, that's wild. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean what <laughs> what it meant. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's it's pretty. Yeah, it, it is interesting because it is very much reflective of the area. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and to some extent, you know, like Pennsylvania is a really big state. People don't realize that. Like it takes about six hours to drive from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia. They're they're on opposite ends of the state. And, you know, so people don't realize Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is a very big state. And you've got Pittsburgh, you've got Philly, and then to a lesser extent, like, you know, Hershey and this more in the center. It's very rural. I mean, you know, you go out and you're in the country and 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 like 
just like anywhere, you know, rural America and urban America are very different, you know, and you, know, you see that in voting patterns, you see that in the kind of things um, people, you know, accept or don't accept in terms of culture. And, um, you know, and it's, it's, it's still that way, you know, it's still that way here. And it's, it's, it, but you're still so familiar with it, no matter where you're from in, yeah. in, in Pittsburgh and yeah. in, in Pennsylvania. So, so, so it, it's a trip, you know, and, and it's interesting too. Like, so like the, like when people ask me, like, what's your favorite zombie movie? It's Night of the Living Dead, you know? And um, like, no question. And How could it, it not be? There, there are some great films that are that are really fantastic zombie films, but like, you know, they're not Night of the Living Dead. First <laughs> off, it 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 um it he created the modern zombie genre because before that it was like Caribbean zombies, voodoo, you know, that's what zombies were. They, well, it was interesting in the film too. They didn't have the word zombie even, even though he kind of created it. it. They were using the word ghoul. Which yeah. I thought was kind of cool. That's true. Yeah. I didn't even yeah. notice that. Yeah. So, you know, so like he, you know, first off, there's that. Then second off, the hero is a black man. Yeah. Right. In 1968. In people we... were getting murdered trying to vote in the South in the <laughs> six, you know, just a couple years before that. And he's got a black man who's the hero, you know? And um, you know, so like, and I read an interview with him. He's, you know, someone said, you know, well, you must have realized. And he said, you know, I, I didn't. It wasn't until after he was cast and I cast him because he was the best person. Right. He was like, but, you know, I but thought it, he was like the best actor. Yeah, yeah. And he said, but, you know, then I realized, oh, wow. Yeah, I guess, you know, there is there is more to this than than what I than what I was maybe thinking about it. And, you know, you get to the end of the film and like, you know, Ben is the only one who lives. He's the only one who makes it through the night and he gets killed, you know, and he gets shot by white men, you know, and they don't realize he's alive. They think he's a zombie, but it, it's, it's, it's just this great metaphor for racism, you know, for us in America, but in general, about how like, you know, you can you can try and you can do all the right things and you know, you're still gonna lose. Yeah, that it it really felt contemporary in that way. It was like, yeah. wow, man, that strikes a chord, especially like with everything that's happened with since George Floyd and with Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter. Um it's like man, this it, it feels like a movie that was made to make a statement about today. Oh, and whether yeah. that was his intent to make this civil rights statement or not, it felt that way. And that made it like extra heavy. I was like, whoa, that it hit home in a way I didn't expect. And and you could say the same thing too about Dawn of the Dead, because I was surprised when I was and I'm sorry, I know we we picked one movie, but Justin and I, when we were talking about this, we kept bouncing back and forth. We're like, I hope people doesn't I'm mind. I'm not gonna stop you. Um, but like the, I didn't, cause see, I didn't see Dawn of the Dead in theaters cause it came out in 1978. I was in third grade, you know, I was clearly not allowed to go see this, but our brother Joe was like gung ho to go see Dawn of the Dead. In fact, our sister did drive him out to Monroeville, which was far <laughs> from here. Um, and um, to go see it at the, cause like they premiered it at the Monroeville mall. So there was a theater out there. Wow. So anyway, yeah, so I was yeah. see, pretty I remember, sick. But I pretty remember, sick. like it was exciting. Like this was a big deal. Like Joe and his buddies, our sister was gonna drive him out to the Morovo Mall. They were gonna go <laughs> see this movie. But I never saw it until I was an adult. And you know, 
the beginning of Dawn of the Dead, you know, the, the like it starts in this newsroom and people are arguing and they're not really saying right away what the problem is, you know, though it becomes apparent quite quickly. And uh, and then they switch to and and that's Franny. She's she's one of the main characters. She's the the, she's the like works uh, in the newsroom. News, she's a news reporter and works in the newsroom. And then and her 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 boyfriend Stephen, who's kind of a doofus. And then they go to these police officers who are, you know, it's easy to think, oh yeah, they're going to this building because they're going after zombies. Well, they're not. They're going into this building chasing Puerto Rican nationalists, okay? People who are in a Puerto Rican liberation movement. And, you know, they're using incredibly racist language that I'm not going to use here. But, you know, know, they're they're, they're describing these people, you know, with racial epithets. Then they start killing them, you know? They start shooting them and beating them up. And, um, you know... (laughs) I remember, you know, not this time, but like the first time I saw that as an adult, I was like, oh my God, holy shit, this could be, have been made this year, you know? And, um, and, and, you know, and there were so many different kinds of liberation movements in the United States in the sixties and the seventies, you know, from the Black Panthers to the American Indian movement to um, the, the, I can't remember the name, but the Puerto Well, actually it's kind of interesting in that in Philadelphia at that time. Well, it was later actually. What, what, how much later was it? Was it was it? seven years later, but. The, the move helped yeah, burn yeah, down. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Well then it was later. Yeah. But it is just interesting. Again, like, yeah, it, it felt it's predictive. It, it was. It felt like he had a finger on the pulse of what was happening, because as he pointed out later, there was a movement with with uh, it was actually called move. But their Black Pan- Panther movement that people that were basically like burned alive by the cops in a building that they were in. And so it was really interesting how, again, you're like watching this as an adult. I'm like, man, these movies, like there is there there. It feels like a social statement within them. And, well, and, and he did do that. Like as he later, he was doing that purposely, you know, like I like the whole idea with the mall and, and why yeah. they come yeah. back and they're like, oh, it's like instinct, you know? Yeah. Well, he was talking about consumer culture in America, you know? And like people go to these malls and yeah. they're like zombies. And like, I mean, you know, you watch them trying to like secure the store and the zombies are trying to get it. It's like Black Friday sale, you know? <laughs> really like, the, like the day after Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's the fourth Thursday in, in, um, in, in November in, Pens- or in America. And, you know, it's a big holiday. Um, for the founding of the country and and all the various myths that go along with that and um and then the day after is one of the biggest shopping days of the year or historically has been and it's called black friday because that's when a lot of companies finally retailers get into the black you know and they start to really make make a a lot of money yeah yeah, these sales were like you know it starts at midnight and people are like beating each other up people die on black friday to get into these stores and so you you so they're at this mall and they've got these zombies that are in there and they're like trying to like get through the things to kill them and (laughs) um and uh so it's just it's cool but then the other flip side uh because you know i want to be fair the other flip side of of the whole um aspect of you know him looking at police brutality and whatnot is that like two of the main characters are police and there there's roger who um 
who is friends with the pilot, you know, the helicopter guy who's going to take who's Franny's boyfriend, who's going to, you know, get them out of there. And he brings his buddy, um, Peter, who is black and a police officer. And he's the one who actually kills the guy who's really going crazy and killing everybody and, you know, using all these racial epithets and whatnot. And, um, and yet in a way, he's also kind of presented as like this, almost like a, um, almost like a monster because, you know, this, this one guy, he's, this one cop, he's going crazy. He's killing all these people and they're trying, the other cops are trying to stop him. And like Peter shows up because, you know, they're, they're gassing people out of this building. So they're all wearing gas masks. So he shows up, he's got this gas mask and he comes up and he's really hulking and he's just standing there because he's a really big guy with this gun. And I, I immediately thought of the thing, you know, like that poster from the thing where you've just got a big hulking thing, you know, and then he shoots the other guy in the back, but he's, he's one of the heroes, you know? And, um, so, so it's, I don't know, his, his stuff is, it's so interesting, you know, because, um, because he really, he really likes to take those tropes and stereotypes and he both uses them and turns them on their head. I was already aware of the, the sequels as a young kid, but I'd always avoided Night of the Living Dead because it was a black and white one. It was really old. And I didn't yeah. actually watch it until my mid thirties. And when I finally did, it was in the noughties, I couldn't believe how relevant it was and that there was a, a, a black man as your lead. I just couldn't fathom that this was, you know, I could pick it up for 99p in a charity shop or something on DVD because yeah. it's just like 15 different companies have released it because it's out of copyright. But, yeah. <laughs> but I was just amazed at what, what I was watching. I couldn't get my head around like how this even got out in that time. It's, yeah. It was such a shock to me. Do you think it actually still lands? We've all said we love this film. We've all said that, you know, it does feel relevant, but we've moved on a lot you would think in society now in 54 years is it still as resonant does it hit that same way oh, yeah i i think so i think so you know because um because we still you know have black men and women being murdered in the street in the united states 54 years later you well, know and and at, at the rate you know it's such a much higher rate yeah yeah than other people yeah in a proportion you know when you look at the 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 number the percentage of of black people in american society versus the percentage of black people who are murdered by the police or killed by the police i mean the percentage is totally out of whack you know yeah um, it, it's still because even like it did strike me like i remember watching the movie as a kid and um and it was actually kind of dope when we watched it because we watched it in the same living room <laughs> at my parents' house that I saw it as a kid when I loved it and and I and it scared the hell out of me and like we were back there and it was cool because it, it's it was just Thanksgiving holiday here so we watched it on Thanksgiving with a bunch of my sisters and mm -hmm. and friends and stuff so wow. it, it it was dope and our dad was there it was just like that was really cool it felt just like being a kid again and um I uh but I I was like man I it, it still struck me as like um as like wow you don't see 
uh, I, I, well, I just thought growing up as a kid, I didn't see a lot of black. I don't remember a lot of black actors being in roles like this. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, and it even still struck me to this day that just like it's interesting that, yeah, you know, we have this guy in this role that you just traditionally didn't didn't really see at that time. And and I think the people have been fighting to make inroads to make it more of a thing now. But there's there's still a ways to go. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, I mean, now, of course, you know, I'm hyper tuned to this shit, right? Like right. I care about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm not the one to ask, you know, maybe in our family, we have our little bubble. I know we all talked about it that night because mm-hmm. we were all struck by that. Like, wow, you know, it's still kind of hard to believe that. It's still that, sadly relevant. Yeah, that the that, that black man was was cast in that role at that time. And then that it's still just the whole thing hits in a way that to what's happening in contemporary America today. Is so that, a... that, that was it for me, for sure. Yeah. There is this scene in the film where the actor, Dwayne Jones, he actually punches woman and knocks her out. And it's mm-hmm. that moment in the film that I just wish hadn't have happened. It sullies like this, the, this character um, yeah. in my mind. Now, watching last night as I did I watched the commentary and he did not want to do that he didn't want that to be part Hmm. of his character in fact he was meant to be a trucker and had quite uh, a strong attitude and like a a bit more racy language and he pulled Mm -hmm. that back and that was allowed but they had to get some way of getting Barbara out of the film for a little bit whilst Mm -hmm. he fixed up the house and that was the only way they could do it so he, he relented and agreed and uh, I just think what a different film it would make if that's my one little niggle, if they actually gave him his like request. Yeah, let's let's get rid of her some other way yeah. just for a little bit. Um, yeah. But that's my, the only thing I can pick. So my final question with you guys, is there anything you can pick in this film? You've grown up with this thing. You've lived in the area where <laughs> this was filmed. Uh, you know, uh, for you, you've you've actually written about this whole genre. Please, like, is there something that you can actually say, well, actually, I don't like that? Well, can I throw one thing in? I know that, like, what kind of blew my mind about it. But again, I think it was a reflection of the time. And it's also a reflection of, like, where we have come. Because I, I do feel like we've made a lot of progress as a society. I know it's hard at times to feel that way, but I actually do. I, I, I see it because I lived it, right? I mean, right. Antifa's almost been a band for 30 years, right? Yes. So, um, which is unreal, but there it is. <laughs> but the women in this film are, like, mindless, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that was that was brutal. And 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 I had the same reaction as you, like when he hits the hits the girl. So she did smack him. Yeah, but like, in but, fairness. <laughs> it isn't cool. No, and I, I was like, oh, that that was a bum out. And then just the fact that like none of these women had any, you know, kind of thoughts for themselves. None of them were there to say, hey, I'm an equal, I want to take action. I deserve to to make decisions here and be included and um that was rough i was like you know i I was like man that's if if this is a if if george romero was and i i don't know you know but if he was trying to say let's make this civil rights statement well he didn't really make a feminist statement at all Mm -hmm. um now in now, 10 years later, when he makes Dawn of the Dead, the lead female character, she actually has all those traits. She's like, yo, guys, 
don't think you can leave me out of the decision making. She like basically like there's a whole scene where she's just like, I want to be included. I deserve to know what's going on. I deserve to make decisions. So mm-hmm. to me, that was like an interesting comparison where you could see like there was 10 there's years later, society had changed and, right. and and he included that in that film. Yeah, and she had agency in a way the other women didn't because at the end of Dawn of the Dead, you know, she's leaving. And um, she, yeah, she, and yeah. there is not, she has learned how to fly this helicopter. There is still not very much fuel and she's still going to leave. And, you know, the other guy who you would think would be like, raw, he's given up. But then he then instinct kicks in and he he goes and he joins her and they leave. Um, But But, but also, though, I'll just throw him really fast. I um, there, you know, surprisingly, it's a slow movie. I mean, like if you night of the living night of the living dead. So, I mean, you have to take into account of when it was made. I mean, it's just not the pacing's different. And and that's how old movies were. I was like pleasantly surprised though, other than that, by almost everything, the fact that like it was really suspenseful and it, it really howled my attention. And I was totally in that house with them. And I was like, how, what would I do? Like, that's the best part about these movies is it's like when, when a movie can put you in a position and you feel like you're there and then you're like, what's the move, you know? And, uh, yes. And and I just I, that's why I thought it was a great movie because from the beginning to the end, I was in that I was I was howled, howled in it like with that fighting in my own head like what what's the move and um and then of course like the 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 overly gratuitous like uh horror of just like the guts you know like people eating human guts and stuff and and i was thinking to myself i was like man at the time this was made that was incredibly shocking yeah that must have been so mind-blowing to people like people holding up intestines and eating them and like (laughs) so i i came at it like without too much of a critical I, you know, I was, I was ready to enjoy it. And maybe for that reason, I don't have anything that I would look at and glaringly, other than what I just mentioned to you, that I would glaringly look at it. I wanted to have a good time with it. I think that it was made for people to have a good time. And honestly, there isn't really much. I mean, there were things that surprised me that I maybe hadn't thought about or hadn't noticed before. Like I totally forgot like that Ben shot Mr. Cooper, the guy who wanted to go to the basement. I totally forgot that he killed him, you know? Um, And so when that happened, that was kind of shocking, but I also never really thought about it before last night where like, you know, at the beginning there's a, there's this fight when the guy, the people who are in the basement come out and Mr. Cooper, he wants to go back down in the basement. The basement is the only place to stay. It's the only place we're going to be safe. And Ben doesn't want to go to the basement because we once were there were trapped. Ben ends up going into the basement. <laughs> He's the only one who survives. And he survives by doing the very thing of the that was advocated by the guy he kills, you know? So um oh, that's pretty dope. So I mean, it was it was pretty hardcore. <laughs> there was some irony there. But as far as what I would change, you know, I, I you know. I agree with Justin that like the female characters on the one hand, they sucked. On the other hand, it was very of its time, you know, and I know that's something that people struggle with, especially younger people, because I mean, they just don't have as much life experience as I do. And just like I don't have as much life experience as my dad, you know, or my older brothers and sisters, you know, I mean, it was very of its time and it was perfectly acceptable at that time to portray women as totally passive, uh, 
non-thinking, you know, creatures, you know, and, and I would also say too, that, you know, what, 25 years later, The Walking Dead comes out. The women characters on The Walking Dead sucked for the first <laughs> two years. And I mean, they were fucking awful. They were shrews or they were passive or they were wimps or they were helpless. And, you know, and I love The Walking Dead. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I love The Walking Dead, but they did not get any good female characters, you know, and for, until the third season so i am not so hard on george romero for making making doing female characters who were so stereotypical 25 years earlier but they can't get it together when the walking dead's out you know and, and, and every whenever you talk it. to this the other walking dead fans they're all like well michonne I'm like, well, you know what? There were about 12 other women in the show for the previous two seasons. We shouldn't have had to wait. But anyway, that's a that's a whole nother thing. So you can see that like this is why one of us wrote zombie novel. Like, I mean, she's deep in it, man. I mean, it's not just like a trend, dude. It was a it was a passion. And you know, it's funny because when we watch movies together, um, and with my other brothers too, like we, we always have a post-mortem afterward, you know, like I remember when we watched 28 Days Later at your house in Lawrenceville with Justin, with Joey, yeah. um, we spent an hour after the movie, oh, yeah. you know, like, well, what would we do different so that we would have survived, you know, yeah. you guys had just bought that canoe. With yeah, man, my brother, we're like, we're in the canoe, we're <laughs> up the river, we're out. <laughs> So, so this is like something that like we've done. It's definitely a, a family tradition. No, yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, <laughs> but I will say like, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought one of the things too, that was interesting about Night of the Living Dead is that how we know modern zombies actually isn't how the zombies were in that movie which is yeah, kind the of romero zombies versus yeah. fast zombies okay go ahead well yeah just in like they used tolls like they uh, had like emotions they reacted to things that, that surprised me because i've come to accept kind of the more modern like walking dead portrayal of zombies so it's kind of interesting that his zombies actually for for a person who kind of created the genre in a way the modern genre things did change a little bit you know the the gunshot in the head that stayed yeah but um yeah i mean I, we were talking about this before we got on the call like uh, you know modern zombies in terms of like they're just these vacant vessels that only want to eat people they're they're a really dumbed down version of the Romero zombies, you know. Yeah, it was a little um, more interesting. You know, because you yeah. know, like they they use rocks to to bang open windows, and they you know they were fire was something they reacted to and were afraid of, and you know, and they weren't super duper slow like that zombie in the in the graveyard that's chasing Barbara. You know, you know he was he was moving. <laughs> Well, I think, and I'll just like give a plug to Anne's book because I love Anne's books. And I, I just, one of the things that I thought was really cool was that she has different types of zombies in her book and they have cool names. And I thought that that, you know, you were asking earlier, like what's something about your book that is different maybe than other things that have come before it. And I thought that that aspect of the book is really interesting and like really, well, really smart. Yeah, that was, I was kind of like, because because they they start out you know like fast the fast zombies in my books were people who are overweight 
it, you know, and then the slow zombies are people who are regular weight, but all fast zombies eventually become slow zombies, you know? Um, and um, and if people want to know how that happens, they'll have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, but I was thinking about, that was a thing that I was thinking about in terms of like, healthcare in America, because in America, you know, it's a it's a for profit system by and large. And, you know, we don't have a national health system and and healthcare is um, is basically dictated on. Do you have the money or not? Do you have a job? Because in America, it's tied very tied to, to your employment and do you have money or not? So like that whole thing came out of me thinking about something that really didn't end up being very prominent in the book, you know, but I was kind of thinking about it at the time and I was going to have it be more of a thing, but you know, you can't keep everything when, he, well, you can, but then you're going to have a terrible book, you know? So, so some things will big. fall out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention before we go? Oh, this was a trip, man. No, it's great. Man, this has been great. Awesome. I loved it. Awesome. I hope so. That's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Would add is I do have a new series that's coming out in January. Uh, the name of the series is Steel City Apocalypse, and it takes place in the same universe as the Undead Age, but this one happens at the beginning. It's totally different characters, and it happens in Pittsburgh. Yeah, <laughs> bring it, baby. So, um, bring it at home. <laughs> and Justin, yeah. thank um, you so much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, thanks so much thank for having us. This was a trip. Fun. This is really cool. There we go. Many thanks to both Justin Sane and Anne Giva for coming on to this show. And I've got to tell you, I think it was one of my highlights since I've started this thing. Uh, I'm not sure how it came across to you, but I just loved that brother and sister dynamic thing that was going on there. They were both trying to say their piece, trying to be polite and not interrupt each other. It was class to watch. I loved it. Uh, I actually just really loved hanging out with them. Felt like they were my friends by the end. They're the best ones. I so loved it. So, yeah. If you're listening to this, Justin and Anne, thank you so much. I had a great time. As I mentioned before, check out all their links. They're going to be in the show notes. And if you do want to contact the show, well, then it's best to email me. Email me. I'm at a year in horror at gmail.com. Uh, find out about me on Insta if you want to. I guess it's Walla Not Weller, I believe. It's been a long time since I've read what my tag is. So maybe that's wrong. Who knows? But that's it. There's going to be a Christmas Day special coming out on uh, Christmas Day. That makes sense. And we are back on the very first of the month with a big hitter episode. That's where I'm going with this. It's a three-parter. It's covering 1969 in full. Would you bloody believe it? 1969. If you're a Patreon member, I'm going to see you over there imminently for some more video nasty stuff. But until then, off you pop. 